Hi, I'm Courtney Brown at Emory University. Welcome to my class in science fiction and politics. Snow Crash by Neil Stephenson. We are going to be continuing our conversation on Snow Crash. And let's go to page 229, which is like the page and a half into chapter 30. And let's read a section. This thing about the snow crash is... Uh, this particular section is really interesting. So let's begin. I'll read the section. Deuteronomy is the only book of the uh, Pentateuch that refers to a written Torah as comprising the divine will. Now, here we have Juanita, which is Hero, the protagonist's ex-girlfriend, and Hero having a conversation. Okay? And she's explaining... Uh, some of the aspects of this uh, of this uh, concept that goes into the metavirus issue. Okay. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of his law from that which is in charge of the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him and he shall read it in all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of his law, of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be uplifted by his brethren and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel, Deuter which is in Deuteronomy. Okay, now the next section is the real crucial one I want to focus on where Hero starts uh, asking some questions. So the Deuteronomists codified the religion, made it into an organized, self-propagating entity, Hero says. I don't want to say virus, but according to what you just quoted me, the Torah is like a virus. It uses the human brain as a host. The host, the human, makes copies of it, and more humans come to synagogue, synagogue and read it. <clears throat> then Juanita goes on and says, I cannot process and analogy but what you say is correct insofar as this after the Deuteronomists had reformed Judaism instead of making sacrifices the Jews went to synagogue and read the book if not for the Deuteronomists the world's monotheists would still be sacrificing animals and propagating their beliefs through oral tradition sharing needles hero says when you were going over this stuff with Legos, did he ever say anything about the Bible being a virus? He said it had certain things in common, this is Juanita, with a virus, but that was different. He considered it a benign virus, like that used for vaccinations. He considered the Asherah virus to be more malignant, capable of being spread through exchange of bodily fluids. Then with Hero... So the strict book-based religion of the Deuteronomists inoculated the Hebrews against the Asherah virus. Back to Juanita. In combination with strict, strict monogamy and other kosher practices, yes, the librarian says, the previous religions, from Sumner up to Deuteronomy, are known as pre-rational. Judaism was the first of the rational religions. As such, in Lagos's view, it was much less susceptible to virus, viral infection 
because it was based on fixed written records. This was the reason for the veneration of the Torah and the exacting care used when making copies of it. Informational hygiene. It's a fascinating idea. You know, there's a new TV show, um, it's actually not completely new, it's relatively new though, that was just canceled, a great show, called Caprica, which is the origin of uh, Battlestar Galactica. And it was canceled because it uh, ended up evolving into too much of a soap opera and science fiction people wanted a little bit more action things going on. But it was fascinating because it started to deal with the idea of a computerized universe, a computerized realm where people would interact as avatars. And what was the name of that TV show? Second Life. Was that? Second Life. Second Life. The Second Life is very similar to that, but much more advanced where you're actually living in it like you are in a real-life situation. And actually, we are getting to that in this book, which is different from um, some of the other punk rock, I mean, uh, uh, cyberpunk novels. In this book, you you use glasses to enter, to be able to immerse yourself in the metaverse of the, the universe. But that is the next step, to be able to put glasses on and then produce an immersion experience but this issue of immersing yourself into the consciousness of somebody else or into a universal consciousness confused comprised of a computer type of a universe is very interesting because it's very much like you're interacting at a very intimate level at the deepest level of thought and in a very real sense, you can lose yourself. And that's what was sort of happening in this in this uh, Caprica show. But in, in this situation, where one gets deeply immersed, very deeply immersed into this alternate universe, you have a situation in which the divide between one reality and the next becomes less apparent. And then subtle things that happen in one reality can affect that which happens in the other reality. And with the issue of a virus changing, having information that's spread from person to person, the real question is, if a virus is spread in one venue, will it have an effect in another venue? And then the other thing that's being raised in this book is what if you have a parallel situation, if nothing is, nothing is, nothing is, is anything other than Information, in which case a virus is simply encoded information and the body has to adapt whenever it gets a new virus, just as a computer program has to adapt whenever a new piece of information link gets in it. Now, what's, let's start talking about these concepts of informational viruses. Here it's talking about Judaism as compared to others. What is the comparisons that are being made between Judaism and other religions? Judaism uh, evolved in this section. And it became more resistant to some viruses. In what way? What was happening? They codified the laws yeah. of the religion. They codified the religion. They codified the religion. So, like, the practices were all written down, um, kind of like a set of rules. So it was all, it was an oral tradition, which is more likely to change, um, because you if something's written down, then it, you know, you can copy it exactly next time you write it down and pass it on. Okay. 
And what was tradition changes more because you're just remembering what you heard. And what was the term that we came up with last time for when you have that type of behavior that becomes that becomes a, a, a sort of repetitive? Go ahead. Um, institutionalization. Institutionalization. So the codification of the religion of Judaism became a form of institutionalization. And institutionalization is when you have that re- repeated patterned behavior. You sort of follow the book. And of course, it gets extreme in other forms of religion, such as Catholicism, where you have doctrine, and you have to follow the exact doctrine. And the doctrine is an, evol- is, is an evolved thing that took place over a long period of time, and we have very strict rules that have to be followed. And doctrine, or the institutionalization, the codification of religion, acts to set up barriers. And then that should remind you of what happens when you have computer updates, when Windows sends out, Microsoft sends out new computer updates. What did, what does it, why does, why do they send out these security updates? They have the computer, the operating system has a, is, is very, very much an institutionalized set of patterns that you have to operate within. Why is a, update needed, a security update? Because, <coughs> because hackers continue to evolve the viruses. The hackers get into it, about, but what does that mean with regard to the... the, the, uh, regard to the, the system has uh, to change in order to uh, compromise. It has to change, but what does that tell you about the system itself? It's not perfect. That's exactly it. it. Go ahead. Oh, well, I was just going to say it's flawed. It has to it's flawed. There's a chink. There's a problem in it. There's a thing in it a hole, a niche, a crack, uh, some some place in it that there's a weakness. And what they do is they set up institutionalized patterns that then become permanent parts of the operating system. So constantly what you have with any operating system, you have a reinforcement of the patterns. But what the hackers would like is to be able to find that crack in the system so that they can invade and take over the system. And especially, especially if they could do it all at once. This is the whole issue of cyber warfare, which the U.S. has invested heavily in, to be able to do that. Go ahead. Um, relating back to how like all this, uh, the biblical yeah. um, analogies and stuff with cyber warfare, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, the U.S. was accused of launching a cyber attack on Iran's nuclear uh, facilities. With a uh, the encoded into the virus was a name Esther. That's like a biblical name, and it was used like Esther was a character who um, defeated the pretty much the modern day um, Palestines uh, through like just basically a a virus. Like she infected uh, like Israel's and said we need to fight and like rise up against these people so I just thought that was interesting yeah side note it's interesting actually with regard to who launched the virus you never really know yeah it could have been the Israelis it could have been the it could have been anybody I mean I have I deal a lot of my friends are in military intelligence and I deal I deal with these people a lot one thing that I do know is they can do anything on the level of computers there is no such thing as a secure computer it doesn't matter what it is they can do it they can break into absolutely anything under any circumstances anywhere. There is no such thing as anything that you can... You know, Norton endpoint, semantic endpoint protection has nothing to do with them. And even if the computer is in a locked safe 
someplace in the middle of Fort Knox with the entire National Guard around them. If they need to be in there at 2 in the morning, they will be in there at 2 in the morning. I don't know how they do it, but I do know that they can get through absolutely anything, anyplace, anywhere. So, um, they're really very ingenious <laughs> what they can do. Anyway, so, um, the idea of trying to, you know, find the cracks in the system is huge. And being able to, and, and the really good people keep those cracks secret. Meaning, once they find a crack, they don't exploit it right away. The hackers are the ones who exploit it right away. As soon as they get a crack in the system, they develop a virus and they launch it and they have fun and they things like that. But the really good people, like the military people, when they find a crack, the last thing they do is exploit it right away. Not until it's absolutely necessary do they... And they have cracks all over the place in all types of operating systems that can do it. But what is this whole thing about... Judaism. Now let's look at it. Judaism is a monotheistic religion. If you have a monotheistic religion, it's only it's one of two monotheistic religions on the planet. The two big monotheistic religions are Islam and Judaism. Christianity, as we were talking last time, is a polytheistic religion where you minimally have three entities that are worshipable. Uh, God, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus. But various versions of Christianity, of course, have all the saints and so on like that, which you can pray to and so on. But the, the thing about that, as compared to a monotheistic religion like Judaism, is somewhat different. If you have all the different saints that you can pray to and ask for favors from, just imagine the variety that you have, access points, for informational access points, for, that you then have to defend. And in a monotheistic religion, you have limited down the access points to basically one serial port. <laughs> Do you get the idea? You have information basically on one thing. And if you have everyone focused on that one thing, you have very little deviation that's, very po that's, that's possible. Now, in Islam, they take it to a point where you can't even have pictures or sculptures or anything very strict with regard to any of that stuff. So... Um, When they're talking about the written law, what does that mean with regard to the informational viruses? What about these viruses? Let's talk about Christianity. What are some of the viruses that invaded with the many access points that Christianity had? We talked about some of them last time. What are some of the access points that you really keep, don't have with Judaism? And to some extent... With Islam, you actually have more of our access points, but that's more complicated. But with Judaism, it's sort of a clear case. It's a well-defined, relatively small religion. What are the access points in Christianity that you have, that you see where viruses, informational viruses, entered the system? The translation of the Bible. The translation of the Bible. Okay, tell me about that. Uh, the Torah is always written in the same exact manner, in the same language, Hebrew. Mm -hmm. and whereas the Bible has been translated into different languages and has been rearranged a lot. Um, okay, that's good. The rearrangement of the Bible, the separation of the Apocrypha, the Protestant versus the Catholic version of it. Okay, those are... As the, what is the big, the big informational virus that caused essentially a complete snow crash in Catholicism? The big one. Historically. Um, the iconic class. What's that? The iconic... Um, like when the, what's that? Like the selling of indulgences, 
the selling of indulgences when Martin Luther put up the... You're getting close. It's not necessarily the indulgences themselves, but Martin Luther himself, the, the Reformation. Yeah. The Protestant Reformation itself. You had a new idea being brought in. And that new idea would then, uh, would then spread. Now, this new idea was able to split Catholicism straight down the middle. And you had actually fractures that occurred elsewhere. You had the Eastern Orthodox churches. Those are separate. You had Protestants break off. Then they had the Episcopals and the Anglicans sort of semi-break off and then sort of sort of hang. The Episcopal priests, the Episcop- Episcopalians still recognize the Pope, but they're considered Protestants. You get the idea of this sort of tangential. You had all these break-offs. That is an indication that that institutionalized framework has more access point as this is more susceptible to viral infections, informational viral infections. Okay, now let's take a look at um, some of the various informational viruses that entered Christianity. As we were talking last time, (laughs) Christianity emerged from Judaism. It was a modernized version of Judaism. It spread out, saying basically, God is a happy God and love drives the universe. And then it spread out into the into the non-Jewish world. That was the so the evangelical component of it, the spreading, the proselytizing, was new to Judaism, and the upbeat stuff was all sort of new. But then it got to Rome, and what was the stuff that it ran into in Rome? We talked a little. Was that antivirus program? Right, they were persecuting. What did you say? The uh, the virus that was the spread of Christianity was was uh, slowed down, or they tried to stop it with a lot of persecution and stuff. No, yeah, but what happened? What was the informational blockade that it ran into once it got to Rome? Pantheon of Roman gods. Was that the Pantheon of Roman gods? Exactly. It ran into other institutionalized behavior that also had many access points. You see, get all these different gods that everybody was from Zeus on down. That everyone was, that was, those are many access points. And thus the informational sort of barrage that Christianity hit, it hit that thing. So what you had was the emergence of things that sort of paralleled the original version of Christianity. The original version of Christianity was very simple. First, they actually thought that maybe you had to convert people to Jews before converting to Christianity. They're actually thinking that maybe you had to go through a Jewish conversion and then a Christian conversion. Eventually, they just sort of dropped the Jewish conversion and just went straight to a Christian conversion. But then you had the emergence of all the hierarchy, things to replace Zeus and all the other gods. You have the main god and all the various sub-gods, which is the saints and Virgin Mary and all the other things that people can pray to. You can actually pray to these people and ask them to interfere, inter, intermediate, to be intermediaries for you to... I mean, when you say to when you say the the Holy Rosary, uh, you know you're you're praying to the Virgin Mary to intervene for you to help you out in certain things. Just like you could actually pray to some of the Roman gods and say, "Can you help me out? This one god seems to be against me. Can you help me out with this other god?" And sort of negotiate deals. And when it got to be Europe, a piece that we have information that we talked about last time was the Christmas tree, for example. It ran into pagan fertility gods and the Christmas tree the fir tree was a fertility god and they said how are we going to deal with that well let's make it a Christmas thing so they brought that into it to sort of these are informational viruses so the original religion is changing adapting to the point where there's really quite a bit of difference now between Christianity as its practice and its original manifestation and a lot of difference between Judaism but Judaism had a lot of infrastructure that was built up a lot of barricades 
it was more resistant to change to the point where versions of Judaism basically are only three now, whereas versions of Christianity, you have endless varieties of Christianity. So with Judaism, you have the Orthodox, you have the Conservative, and you have the Reform, various versions. But the, really, the similarities are more sim- are more more alike than the differences between them. Okay, so the whole idea of this codification of religion is basically setting up of these informational barriers, reducing the number of access points to produce rigidity, to produce resistance for viral infections. As a similar parallel on the biological side, what was the original reasons for celibacy among the priesthood in Catholicism? What is it now? Now you get married to God and you basically are devoted to God and you're sort of leaving the worldly life of the householder and becoming a, a monk or a a priest leaving a, living a celibate life. But what was the original? What was one of the main original readings reasons for thinking of this? Well, there was a time when a lot of people were dying off from venereal diseases, syphilis. One of the ways to protect the priesthood was to make everybody celibate. Viral infections. Bacterial infections, infections of various of various types, and then of course it became a religious concept, an idea that was beyond just keeping bacterial and viral infections at bay, but you actually embed it into a concept of physical survival, uh, so that you can get an intellectual sort of reasoning for it, and then you have that intellectual reasoning being the reason you know that is the reason that's sort of given today. So the whole idea that they're talking about now is. The establishment of institutions within society that have barricades for self-preservation. Now let's look at politically, national stuff. What do we do to protect ourselves nationally in terms of information? What information do we use? What do we use to protect ourselves informationally? Now any nation can come tumbling down if you break up the informational stranglehold. Remember the fall of the Soviet Union. It was basically, the Soviet Union was not eliminated by an army, not by physical means. It was, an, it was a virus. It was an informational virus. It became irrelevant. The operating system no longer worked anymore. People simply walked away from it. And you had a snow crash. So, what are the informational barriers? We have to be able to recognize that we paralleled a few religions. Now let's talk about the nation. Let's pick the United States, for example. What informational barriers do we have to enforce the preservation of a status quo? And then we can later change it to look at anything. For example, we can look at science, the institution of science, and the various patterns, pattern behavior, the institutionalized behavior that protects, that protects science, both from advancing but also from viral infections. Let's talk about, let's talk about politics. What does the United States do to protect itself? What kind of viruses could be could be threatening to it? And what kind of uh, protections do we have? Constitution. The Constitution. That's a good thing. Now, Robert Dahl, who wrote A Preface to Democracy, he's a Yale professor, political science. Robert Dahl was one of the first people to really popularize and note the idea 
that constitutions really are not worth the paper they're printed on. That <laughs> constitutions don't actually work. Otherwise, you could simply photograph, photocopy the U.S. Constitution and say, if you want a stable democracy here, just follow these rules and everything will work out fine. But that doesn't work. What Robert Dahl noted was democracy works because the constitutions codify the behavior that had already been institutionalized, the pattern behavior that already existed. And the example was Britain. It's a fine, functioning democracy, yet it has no constitution. Constitutions are not the things that you require. It's the, it's the codification of rules that you've already adapted. Now, that exactly parallels this passage that we just had. You have established patterns, and then you want to protect those patterns. You codify them into a document, as in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy or in, in terms of the Constitution. Let's switch gears and go to another nation. Myanmar, formerly Burma, ruled by a corrupt military junta. Well, they experienced a hurricane, a cyclone, really bad one. And then the international community sent aid in the form of ships that basically surrounded the coast of Myanmar. And what was the response? Does anyone remember? You were in high school when that happened. Go ahead. Um, didn't they reject the aid? They um, rejected it. Yeah, for the sake of not accepting uh, external influence. Right? Not accepting what? Oh, well, they didn't want, uh, the government didn't want any external influence, so they actually went so far as to reject foreign aid for hurricane. That's exactly right. The What happened was the boats arrived, and they were, many of the boats were U.S. military boats, like aircraft carriers filled with supplies. And the president said, we'd like to give you this stuff, free of charge. Just let our people carry the stuff off of the boat and deposit it there. Let it get it. Let us deliver it to where it's needed. Your, your infrastructure had completely collapsed. We could helicopter it in. We can just drop it all over the place and we can get the supplies and then we'll go. And the military hunter said, read my lips. <laughs> no aids coming in. They, they said the military hunter said no, absolutely not. We would rather die than accept any foreign troops. Eventually, they accepted some stuff to be handed over, and then the, the, the Burmese military themselves could, when able, to deliver some of it. But that basically fell through. But essentially, the ships just packed up with all of their supplies and left. What was the military hunter afraid of? What they had is a complete blockade. There was no. They had suppressed the democracy movement within Myanmar. And what they didn't want at all costs was a whole bunch of people from the outside coming in and exposing the Myanmar population to this outside influence. It would be an informational, informational infection. And the real question is, would they be able to keep control once the population had seen that large influx of people coming in and all that communication? It wasn't worth the risk. There's another case. Now I want someone else to explain the situation, the parallel situation that we have in North Korea. What's happening in North Korea that sort of is similar? What are some of the facts on the ground with North Korea? Go ahead. Well, they have a great amount of media, like internal media censorship and they block a lot of foreign products. And okay, internal media censorship. In what forms does it happen? All forms. 
Well, what specifically all forms? Um, I mean, internet, TV, literature. Okay, there's no access to the internet. What else? What about radios? They can only listen to certain radios. Pardon me? They can only listen to certain radios that the, North Korea, uh, the, the leaders want them to listen to. Yes, they can and only listen to certain... They, and they can't use cell phones. They can't use cell phones. To yeah, communicate, uh, and they have no live TVs. No live TV. It's all recorded before and, and... Let's go back to the radios. Well, what do you mean? Why do they live right next to South Korea? Why don't they just tune into the South Korea stations? Every Korean family, North Korean family, has a radio. But they only listen to the one station that's broadcast by the North Korean government. Why don't they just tune into a South Korean station? Because the radios can. Because hmm? the radios can. It's the radio what? Because the radios aren't able to. Yeah, why can't they? It's all blocked. What's that? The radio signals are all blocked. No, it's not that. You can actually pick up the signals. It's decentralized behavior. Like it's to the, they've been conditions. No, it's not a behavioral thing. All the radios are state issued, and they're all soldered to a single station. You can't pick up another station. The only way you could do it is by cracking into the radio and literally knowing electronics, fiddle with it to, uh, to chip off the solder. And then, of course, they have regular random inspections to see if the radio's been messed with. <laughs> so you never know when you're going to be, when you're going to, when your house will have a knock on the door and somebody will come in to inspect your radio. And if it's found that you've been monkeying with your radio to pick up other stations, off you go. The ramifications can be very serious. So do you get the idea? These are blockades. These are barriers that are put up. Information. That's the real threat. The threat is information. Now, we're sort of picking on easy regimes to pick on. The North Korean regime, the, Bur the Burmese, Myanmar regimes, those are easy ones to pick on. But what about the U.S.? A tougher case. Do you think we're immune to that type of stuff? Okay, so we don't block people from coming in. But do you think we don't do anything else? Do you think this is really a society that has no barricades? Go ahead. Um, well, I, at least in, in terms of the um, in the middle part of the 20th century, uh, there was the huge Red Scare in the United States, which was um, the Red Scare. Yeah, go yeah, ahead. The red, uh, but, and there was this great fear of communism, and um, in this context, that was actually the virus that the United States um, government was afraid of and then that's what it made the people afraid of and then there were the McCarthy trials um, and there was, I don't know, there was a great effort to try to prevent any semblance of um, I don't know popularization of communism in the United States and try to expunge it. This is a really good point. So in the mid-1900s there was that whole McCarthy period and we had the blacklists where people who had ever, um, you know, signed a petition to support any lefty cause became, they were often, and, and media personalities, film stars, were called into the, uh, the, the famous committee in Congress that they were being interrogated on, the Joe McCarthy interrogations. And some of the people refused. And when they refused to come in and testify, 
they were often blacklisted. They couldn't get work anymore. And some of them had to leave the country. There are famous people that had to literally stop their show business career and had to go to Europe and leave the country because of things like that. So uh, the McCarthy scare was ended finally by Eisenhower, who simply called them out one day and said, this has got to end. But that went on for a terrifying number of years. But that was sort of crude. That was sort of crude. And it didn't last very long, this scare against communism. In fact, one of our members, of, one of the members of my department is sort of an expert on that period, uh, Harvey Clare. And so if some of you may end up taking courses with Harvey Clare. And uh, he's literally one of the national experts on the Communist Party in America. And that whole period, that whole, that whole, that whole era. But now that was sort of a picking on the McCarthy period is sort of like picking on North Korea and Myanmar. They're sort of the easy ones. What about now? Go ahead. Uh, I was actually going to say that going off of that today, I think there's still kind of an anti-communist sentiment in our schools. I know when we studied the McCarthy area um, or era, they never said he was wrong. They just said he accused innocent people. They never said that communism isn't really as bad as we think it is. It's yeah, there is there is that. Uh, however, uh, when he was originally called out, he was called out in the brutalist of terms, and Eisenhower, you know, threw down the gauntlet to say this guy is going. So it was it was it was a real brutal thing. The thing about communism is I don't want to dwell too much on com- communism because communism lost. It, it, there's no question about it. It was a flawed theory. It lost. It was it was brilliant. Marx came up with some brilliant ideas. He saw the evolution of peasant society into an industrial society, and you'd have large masses of workers brought together into dormitory-type situations where they would be essentially enslaved working for someone who owned the factory. And then you'd have a spark, an intellectual elite, the vanguard of the proletariat, who would activate this powder keg by taking all these people who are in a concentrated situation and saying, you know, don't you see you can rise up and be free? And they were then to violently capture the factory and take over the means of production. The reason communism failed is Marx at that time in the mid-1800s, Communist Manifesto came out in 1848, never saw the uh, the evolution of democracy to include left-wing parties. So... The stones that the workers are supposed to use to bash in to the factory gates and take over the means of production turned out to be paper stones, ballots. The ballots, and you could then, why take over the means of production if I could just vote? And so you could vote for the Communist Party, you could vote for the Social Democratic Party, you could vote for various lefty parties, the whole spectrum. And that was unforeseen by Marx. And that sort of diffused this whole revolutionary fervor. So when we talk about communism and its more modern manifestations, we talk about it evolving in places that it was never really designed to happen. When we're talking about communism in Russia, or Soviet Union, rather, and communism in China, for example, it was never really designed to happen in those places. Those places were originally peasant places, places where farmers grew up. That was not supposed to happen there. You're supposed to have it in an industrial place where the factories grew up, not supposed to, it wasn't supposed to be the Soviet Union in China that was supposed to have communism. So what communism ended up evolving into was a dictatorship. 
an informational control regime that eventually collapsed on both sides. I mean, China right now is is technically, uh, uh, in in words only, a communist society. In reality, it's the most vibrant capitalist society on the planet Earth. So, you know, it's it's just not a communist society anymore. I mean, so it, communism in itself just didn't work. So if we just spend too much time on communism, we avoid the main issues, which is today. Where do we find it today? What about this informational stuff today? I want to read another passage, but before I do that, I want one more comment. What about today? Give me some ideas about today. Like, well, apart from like the extreme polarization in America, it's very difficult for like the entire country to be united in one thing like this. But there's a really like, serious right-wing ideology right now of like viewing left-wing ideas as a virus and like labeling it socialism is a really big thing, especially back in '08. Yeah, you're getting at something that's rather interesting. Uh, Labeling things falsely as being... uh, So when they started labeling any kind of left-wing idea as socialism, that was kind of an antivirus against the ideology that they opposed in general. I I might more loosely package that into the concept of derision, into the concept of ridicule. One of the easiest ways to do that is to, to attack people today in, informa- in terms of an informational blockade is not to silence them the Joe McCarthy way or to send them to uh, re-education camps, the Stalinist or elsewise uh, way, but, the, but rather to destroy their reputations, Repu- attack their reputations, attack who they are as people and then get the ridicule factor to work against them. Go ahead. I was just thinking about like the existence of political parties. You have two groups of people, and each political party has their own particular platform, and their platform can't change very much because then they'll lose the majority of their support. So with, by having two main political parties, you can't get any new ideas in because an independent won't gain enough support to have an influence. That's a very good point. Actually, you're raising another very relevant point, which is some of the structural constraints that can be that can be raised, that can be instituted into a society to give this barricades is related to why we have two parties. Now, you've just pointed out that when you have two parties, you really can't get these third parties to come in. Why is it? In Europe, you can have these alternate parties. You can have four, five, six parties. That's a winner-take-all system that we have, and they have proportional representation. With proportional representation, you just have to get a certain percentage of the vote, and you are in the parliament. It's just like the president, uh, like electing the president. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's Barack Obama or somebody else. A president has to do something they have to do. They have to boom the economy. And it doesn't matter who they are, what their premises are, just the president has to do something of their own jobs. They have their their one task that they have to do, and it's almost party-less. It's almost independent of what party they came from. It's just, do they do that job? But go ahead. Oh, and and I also want to say something about the the two red scares. Like... The reason why a senator from Wisconsin, McCarthy, can influence that much, I think is because it benefits most of, uh, of the leaders of that time or their main control ideas of communism. Uh, it's like 
the reason uh, why Marcosi is failed because he pissed some guys in the military and that just so he failed. And it's like nothing is really bad or good like this. Uh, you can't say Judith like the reason why I say Judaism is vaccines and some other religion is like Malaysian is because it's just the good the good one benefits most of the people or some people in power. That's why they call it like vaccines. Well you're raising an issue of the compatibility of the institutionalized behavior with the self-interest of the current elite. And you will find that to be absolute. Meaning, the, self, the, the elite became the elite because they were able to manage the information flow that occurred within the institutionalized patterns that existed. Whether you had two parties or you had multiple parties, they managed that informational flow so they became head of that institution. Now, those people then have a self-interest in maintaining their own control. And so, they thus become defenders of the institutions that they were elected into. Now, that's very relevant to today's politics. One of the great complaints that you're being here, that you're hearing today, raised against the president, and you will have the same complaints raised against any president that gets in, is the issue of being, of selling out. The issue of for example, with Barack Obama, he was elected into the presidency with the idea of being able to transform the domestic politics. What the left wing of the Democratic Party is saying right now is that he didn't transform it, electoral politics as we know it, but he, 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 he maybe got some big bills passed, but fundamentally he's managing the system as it was originally given to him just with a slight change in emphasis. Nothing has essentially happened. Nothing has essentially changed. A health bill, for example, was put through, but without the public option. And the public option was the big thing that everyone was pushing for, to have the health bill pushed in the first place. In a sense, the health bill was largely managed by the insurance agents, the insurance companies. So, and if you look at what happened before that, during the Bush administration, which you had uh, the the Medicare component, Part D, where you have prescription drug medication being paid for uh, by the government, uh, it, the insurance companies themselves wrote that thing. So it was not that the Bush administration came up with a way to pay for the medications, but they came up with a method to just about force older people to buy some type of private insurance. So the big winners of that are the private insurance companies. So what you have with all presidencies are that the elite then become the defenders of the institution, even if they were, were elected with the promise of, of overthrowing the institution. They are then running the institution. It's like saying, you are now captain of this large boat. Sink it. Well, what captain is going to sink her or his own boat? They're going to try to manage it. So they become co-opted in that sense. But I, I do want to change gears a little bit and get back fundamentally to the to the book. Informational blockades that we have. Okay? Okay, what um, Well, I was just going to, um, kind of as a side note, it is related to the book, uh, how you mentioned before kind of re-education camps and um, how historically they've been used to 
um, exactly re-educate people on mass and um, and influence people and condition them. And another form of that that's popped up historically has been propaganda, and that there's that's been very widespread um, in the efforts to condition people. And um, something that I noticed that's connected to the book is also in the book, um, Neil Stevenson, he predicts that uh, the that every kind of facet of society and um, and world control will eventually fall into the hands of corporations. And what we're seeing today is that there's actually a lot of conditioning of people um, through propaganda by corporations in terms of advertisement, because corporations can use advertisement. Well, one of the... You're raising some good points. One of the criticisms that's made of the American democratic system is that it becomes impossible for the masses to exert any significant level of independent thought because they are deluged by people who already have power, who already have money, who can afford to pay for advertising and you get deluged with information and then when you do have an issue that you want to debate, what you get is barraged by campaigns that fiercely attack each other and a great deal of the information is simply false or misleading in the campaigns. So what you get is the masses being just totally confused. Now in the current election, the polls seem to indicate, the one that just that we just had, is that for the House of Representatives, the you know, they essentially threw the Republicans the key to the car, but they didn't tell the government where to go. Meaning with the current elections, the people were basically saying politicians are not the answer. But they don't really have an answer. And in our current situation, it's really questionable whether the populace can actually direct the government to do anything. Because whenever you have any proposal, you're going to get this war, this banging war in the airways, and no real clear direction will come about. What you have, in in a very real sense, is the development of alternate means to stop infections, viral infections, of the type that you're talking about, to prevent... and what's happening to prevent, essentially, a crash of the system. So you may see this, see, say that this looks like a vibrant democracy because we have elections and we have everybody campaigning out there and you have all these television advertisements and Internet advertisement. But the reality is you look at it and you say, who's funding them? Who's paying for them? And the reality is the system never changes. The evidence that we have a highly institutionalized setting is that the system itself is almost impossible to change. Let's go to another section. Let's go to page 231, which is um, a little bit... It's just uh, the next page over. And I want to start where it says, uh, so did Lagos think that the the Asherah virus actually altered the DNA of the brain cells. Okay, everyone see that? This is just one page over from where we ended up last time. So did Lagos think that the Asherah virus actually altered the DNA of the brain cells? Yes. Again, uh, Hero is talking with uh, his old girlfriend, Juanita. Yes, this is the backbone of his hypothesis, that the virus was able to transmute itself from a biologically transmitted string of DNA into a set of behaviors. What behaviors? What was Asherah worship like? Did they do sacrifices? No. But there is evidence of cult prostitutes, both male and female. Well, does that mean what I think it does? Religious figures who would hang around the temple 
and have sex with people? More or less. Bingo. Great way to spread a virus. Now I want to jump back to an earlier fork in the conversation. As you wish, I can handle nested forkings into virtually any depth. And Hero asks, you made a connection between Asherah and Eve. Eve, whose biblical name is Hawa, is clearly the Hebrew interpretation of an older myth. Hawa is an Ophidian mother goddess. Ophidian? Associated with serpents. Asherah is also an Ophidian mother goddess, and both are associated with trees as well. Eve, as I recall, is considered responsible for getting Adam to eat the forbidden fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which is to say, it's not just fruit, it's data. <laughs> what is this saying? There's an acknowledgement here that some of our very earliest understandings of radical change, things that produce a snow crash in the society, are informationally based. What do you have here? What what passage is he? What part of what is he talking about? What is Hero and Juanita talking about? The fall of man from what? From that innocent state where everything was kind of just... From that innocent state. From heaven. From that paradise. From the Garden of Eden. Translate that into a perfectly running institutionalized society. Where all the rules were being obeyed. You may do everything except don't eat from that tree. Those are the rules. Okay? What was the serpent then? What was the devil? By the way, the um, translation of the Bible from the original text that talks about the snake, the devil, the serpent, that's a very bad translation. The original translation, the serpent was reptilian, but it was big. It was a big thing. It was a, like a being, not a snake that crawls along the ground. The translation you get now is that it's a snake. But what was the... What was the... Um, what was the downfall caused by? Paradise is a perfectly institutionalized society. But what happens in a perfectly institutionalized society? You eat fruit. Nothing happens in a perfectly institutionalized society. A perfectly institutionalized society is essentially dead. And so what do you get when you have a snow crash in that society? You get an infection, an informational infection where the, the serpent comes in with a piece of information, a temptation, saying, try that. It's not so bad. <coughs> Just an apple from the fruit of knowledge. And what was basically understood from our very beginning of our, from the very beginning of our societies is that if you take any institutionalized setting and add new information to it, you will get a crash. That's what the meaning of that story is. Go ahead. I feel that it doesn't matter if the serpent says, eat the fruit or don't eat the fruit. He, he introduces the fruit. Exactly. Like, it's the focus of attention. Like, when I, when I said, don't think of the apple, what do you think in your mind is apple? It's like the way it's actually That's exactly right. But what do you get when you have a snow crash then? You get the collapse of the old society, but you also get growth. 
you get hardship, but hardship creates challenges, and challenges creates opportunities for growth. What is the word in Chinese for crisis? Weiji. Translate Weiji. It has two words to it. What is it? Translate Translate both words. Uh, Wei means dangerous, and Ji means opportunity. Like yes. Danger and opportunity combined. Weiji. That's what a crisis is. That's what the fall of the Garden of Eden was. It was a crisis. Danger. But with it, opportunity. We would never have the society as vibrant, as wonderful as it is today with its growth in all different directions without the crash. What we were basically recognizing in the very beginning of our civilization is that information causes the destruction of institutionalized behavior. And this is exactly what Bill Clinton was referring to. Exactly what Bill Clinton was referring to. When he told the rest of the United States, don't worry about China. They're opening up the Internet. There'll be democracy. There'll be capitalism in just a little while. They said they're opening up the Internet. They won't be able to control it. Information will do everything. That's the end of it. It will just take its own course. The thing is, once you break down the barriers and let any information, whatever is in that situation before will change, you will have the collapse of the institution. You'll have the collapse of the Garden of Eden. And even God could not stop it. Isn't that interesting? That's the interpretation. It's the nature of growth. Weiji. It's the nature of growth and it must happen in all settings. What you have is the vibrant resistance to stop it. But it can never be stopped. Because if you ever succeed in stopping it, you have the Garden of Eden, which is a dead society, not a perfect society. You have a society that never grows. And so... It's a very interesting thing. Okay, now let's go read another. Let's another section further down on that same page. Um, I'm going to start here. I'm going to skip a couple paragraphs on the same page, 232, where it starts with correct. Correct. According to Kramer and Mayer, there are good demons and bad demons. Good ones bring physical and emotional health. Evil ones bring disorientation, a variety of physical and emotional ills. But these demons can hardly be distinguished from the diseases they personify. And many of the the diseases sound to modern ears as though they must be psychosomatic. That's what the doctors did about David, that his disease must be psychosomatic. Actually, that's what the doctors said about David. I don't know anything about David except for some rather banal statistics. It's as though good and evil were invented by the writer of Adam and Eve, legend to explain why people get sick, why they have physical and mental viruses. So when Eve, or Asherah, got Adam to eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, she was introducing the concept of good and evil into the world, introducing the metavirus, which creates viruses. Do you get the idea? That sort of states it bluntly. (coughs) The whole idea of an informational cascade that triggers the collapse. Now, what I want from you is a recognition that we in our society have blockades. We have all types of barriers. You don't see them because you're too used to them. That's the problem. But if the collapse were ever to happen, you'd then see it. What you'd have to do is to get good at seeing the blockades 
that reinforced the institutionalization before the collapse. Now look, I'll give you an example. We just went through one of the most serious economic meltdowns since the Depression, and nobody saw it coming, except a few who were on the inside and made large profits by trading, <laughs> by insider trading, doing all types of things to get out of them. But we had essentially an economic meltdown. Okay? Um, if this house of cards was so big that it collapsed, do you think that absolutely nobody knew what was going on? That absolutely no, don't you don't you realize that there was something obviously very wrong with the system, and that people were being kept from knowing what that thing was? It wasn't until the economic meltdown happened that people said, "What was wrong? What happened?" It was the crisis that produced that awareness that there was something fundamentally wrong in the system. Okay, I'm going to zip over really quick while we have a little bit more time. Um, I want to go over a large way into chapter into uh, page 351, and that's in. And we're going to we only have a few minutes, so we're going to have to do this quickly. Chapter 47. And it's about uh, one, two, three, four pages in from the end of chapter... I'm sorry, it's in chapter 48. It's about four pages in from the end of chapter 48. And it's on page 351. And it starts with, he knows one thing. This is, they're talking about Hero. He knows one thing. The metaverse has now become a place where you can get killed. Or at least have your brain reamed out to the point where you might as well be dead. This is a radical change in the nature of the place. Guns have come to paradise. It serves them right, he realizes now. They made the, th the place too vulnerable. They figured that the worst thing that could happen was that a virus could get transferred into your computer and force you to un-Google, or un-Goggle, un rather, and reboot your system. Maybe destroy little data if you were stupid enough not to install any medicine. Therefore, the metaverse is wide open and undefended, like airports in the days before bombs and metal detectors, like elementary schools in the days before maniacs and with assault rifles. Anyone can go in and do anything they want to. There are no cops. You can't defend yourself. You can't chase the bad people. That's going to take a lot of work to change that. A fundamental <coughs> rebuilding of the whole metaverse carried out on a planet-wise corporate level. What do you have med what do you have hero thinking about now? In the one minute that remains. Well, you also restructure you know, the, the this is the metaverse is a concept that's been pretty much ingrained in their society for quite some time, and he's thinking about how to restructure it and realizing that it's would be very difficult to take an entirely corporate level overthrow of the whole thing on a very high level in order to overthrow that regime. That's exactly the point. What he's talking about now is that this is after the crisis, after the collapse. There's been a snow crash. And he says, how are you going to rebuild? That's the real, the real issue that people are dealing with. It's not so much that there will be a crash. There will always be crashes. Societies will always collapse. 
there will never be a society that is permanent. Be it the Holy Roman Empire, be it the United States, be it the Soviet Union, be it anything else, no society will last forever. There will always be a crash in everything. The big human dilemma is what Hero is seeing right here in this passage. How do you rebuild? What is the structure that you're going to have that's left over from what's in the past? You're still going to have a metaverse. What's going to be salvaged? And how is it going to be restructured from the top to the bottom? It is the greatest single challenge that humanity faces. Because it is so easy to rebuild and run into the same problems that you had before. The financial system we have now is really hardly changed from what we had in the last meltdown. The real question is, how are you going to change everything in our society when a complete collapse occurs? And that's what Hero is seeing. Is seeing. Science fiction deals with the future. And what you should be thinking about is predicting the future, looking towards the future, so you don't have to wait until the crash to begin rebuilding. The best thing in life is to be able to plan the rebuilding before the crash happens. That should remind you of another great novel that we read when we started this course. Foundation. The Foundation Trilogies. That ties in Snow Crash with Isaac Asimov's Foundation Trilogy. The whole plan of Harry Seldon was to be able to predict the resurrection of humanity after the crash. And he did it before the crash happened. He established the plan for the resurrection before the collapse. That was one of the great inventions of Harry Seldon in the Foundation Trilogy. But that's the dilemma that Hero is facing right now in the snow crash. Okay, so you're ready to write. You're going to have to find... I hope you know what you're going to write about. You're going to have to find some aspect of our current society now that is an aspect of the blockades, the aspect of the institutionalization. The United States is still here. There must be things that keep the support of that. Now, actually, one mentioned, one was already mentioned, the two-party system. We didn't go into a lot about why the two-party system actually is a reinforcement of that, but that the, the truth is third parties have very tough time getting new ideas in. There was only one time in American history where third parties were a real threat, and that was right after the Depression when Franklin Delano Roosevelt saw these third parties as a real threat and actually thought that the United States was going to go either fascist or communist unless he could adopt all the ideas. So that the Democratic Party ended up adopting all these ideas that were coming out from uh, from Reverend Towson, Father Coughlin, a whole bunch of Huey Long, a whole bunch of third parties that were coming out. But now you have to think for your assignment, you have to say, what's going on now? What are some of the blockades? What are some of the institutionalized patterns that would uh, be affected that that would be affected in, uh, in, in, in effective in keeping the institutionalization going. So Go that's our scope of writing? What's that? That's what we're supposed to write about. Yeah, the whole idea. You're supposed to uh, tie this in to something that you're seeing in contemporary politics. Can we tie in other aspects of this book or just that aspect of this book? Is that so? Can we tie in other aspects or just this aspect? It's exactly the same as your other assignments. Okay. okay? Yeah, but one of the main things that is about this book is the institutionalized patterns that establish things that are, that eventually crash. And so one of the things that you're going to have to find to make, to make this book relevant to contemporary politics 
you're going to have to find what other things that would crash in our society. Where are the institutionalized patterns? And what is the informational threats that could affect those institutionalized patterns? You have to find something. Look at CNN.com. Look at the New York Times, NYTimes.com. Find out something that's going on in the news where there's a struggle. And you'll see, if you look, read between the lines, what is the government and the rest of society doing to stop that informational flow? To stop the virus from getting in? Remember, the New York Times, all the news is fit to print. It's really all the news that they are willing to print. The same with the other news sources. There's a ton of stuff you don't get. What are the informational viruses? What are the informational blockades? It's not just semantics endpoint protection that's protecting your computer. The whole society is geared up towards maintaining the system in all of its aspects, be it religion, be it science, be it government. Find them. And that's what you write about for two and a half pages. So do you still want us to find another passage in the book? Or do you want us to just yeah, what we talk Yeah, definitely. Passages in the book should be, uh, it's a very good way to approach it, dealing with a passage in the book in terms of your writing. But we had actually hoped to have more time to talk, but we talked a lot about other things, and, and that was good. But um, I had actually thought that maybe there would be time for you to read your passages here, but that didn't happen. But you definitely can incorporate them in your, in your essays. Are we all ready to go? You hand everything in on Thursday, right? <laughs>